Hello, and thank you for joining us for a special episode of The Meaning of Health. In this episode, we speak with the head of the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Western Australia, Professor Colleen Fisher. We have an interesting conversation with Colleen about her career in research, focusing mostly on family and domestic violence. We discuss the work that Colleen has done with migrant communities in particular, and how this work can be both challenging and rewarding. We also touch on the impact that the current COVID-19 pandemic is having on family and domestic violence in Australia and what can be done to try and address this. Our conversation with Colleen highlighted many of the challenges people in our communities face every day and we found it very enlightening. We hope you find it interesting too. of The Meaning of Health. I'm one of your hosts, Craig. And my name's Courtney. And we're very lucky to be here today with Professor Colleen Fisher. Welcome, Colleen. Thank you, Craig, and thank you, Courtney. It's great to be here. Excellent. I'm glad that you could come on. I know that you're extremely busy at the moment with everything that's going on uh, at the university. Yeah, it's certainly a a unique time to be part of um, public health um, and public health within universities. Yeah, excellent. Well, I was going to just get you to let the listeners know a bit more about your background and your current role and and what you're up to at the moment. Yeah, sure. Thanks for that. Um, So I've been um, in academia for about 20 years now. Um, My um, disciplinary background is actually um, sociology, so specifically um, health sociology. Um, Since graduating with my PhD, um, I've sat in... Um, a school of psychology, and I've also sat um, in public health. Um, the reasons that I've sort of um, been in those, both those situations is um, because of my qualitative research. So I was hired on both instances to um, bring qualitative research um, into initially the School of Psychology at Cowan University and qualitative research um, in school of what was then the School of Population Health um, at UWA. Um, so I've been undertaking. Um, been a teaching and research academic since 2005 so along with teaching being um, having an active research profile um, largely in the area of um, broadly women's health psychosocial aspects of women's health but the focus of my research has largely been around um, the issue of family and domestic violence um, and when I started um, researching um, that issue it was not common for domestic violence to be considered a public health issue it's only been much more recent that um, the issue is firmly on the public health agenda, which is you know, really pleasing um, to me. I think that it's definitely um, a public health issue. It has um, a range of health and wellbeing implications um, and viewing it through a public health framework, we can look at multiple levels of which to prevent um, and intervene. So mm-hmm. um, that's where I do most of my research. Um, I've done a range of evaluations. I've looked um, across the lifespan um, and also internationally um, have um, connections to uh, Bangladesh, Canada, Thailand um, and Afghanistan Um, and also cross-culturally. My most recent research is looking at um, family and domestic violence in the context of um, refugee settlement um, in uh, in the host country. Okay. Right. Uh, so excellent. what made you focus on domestic violence as kind of your area of research? 
Yeah, so that's that's a bit of a long story. But um, <laughs> growing up in country New South Wales, um, I was sitting outside my house one day and this house arrived on the back of a truck to um, a block of land um, two doors up, which was vacant. Um, I used to sit there and I used to see women and children sitting on the back step and wonder, you know, what, you know, what were they doing and, and why were they there? Turned out it was a women's refuge. Um, so that was sort of my original peaking of interest. Um, but I've always had an interest in um, sort of uh, women's health, uh, social justice issues, um, and sort of all those interests sort of coalesced when I was taking my, undertaking my honours year. Um, I was offered a project um, looking at um, domestic violence and I thought, well, that'd be really, really interesting. So I took up that honours project and then went on to um, undertake my PhD in the same issue and have been researching it um, mm. ever since. So it's a, it's a challenging area, but it's such an important area that needs a lot of research. Mm. And you mentioned earlier that you had been drafted into uh, jobs because of your qualitative research experience. What is it about qualitative research in particular that interested you? Uh, I actually feel very privileged to be able to undertake research where um, you're actually interacting with people um, and they they open up to you and you, you get to hear their stories. And it's just so humbling, uh, particularly uh, in the area of you know, family and domestic violence when the issues are so are so acute that um, people are happy or willing to be able to um, you know tell you their story um, to you know take you into their confidence um, and actually hear that story um, with that comes responsibility about um, ensuring that um, how we retell that story um, is from a strength-based approach um, and is empowering um, but you, I also get to see people's strengths their resilience um, and I often think, my goodness, if I was in that situation, how would I cope? Uh, so it's, it's just, um, it's humbling um, and it's just so powerful being able to actually interact with people and their stories and their words um, rather mm -hmm. than sort of just numbers on a page, I guess. Yeah. And, and just something that we probably didn't uh, talk about right at the beginning. So the, the terms family violence, domestic violence and family and domestic violence seem to pop up in the media a lot. Now, are they, is there any difference between those terms or are they all relatively the same thing? Well, uh, that's a really interesting question because that's another thing that makes the research in this area quite challenging. So I just started with a much broader term and that's violence against women. Uh, so that includes uh, violence that per that's perpetrated both in private and public life, um, including physical, sexual, non-physical violence as well. Um, and violence against women has also been um, used as a tactic in the war, so um, uh, sexual assault and things like that against mm -hmm. women. So domestic violence um, is often referred to also as intimate partner violence. So that's abuse against an intimate partner. But once again, across those broad range of behaviours from physical, sexual, non-physical, Family violence um, is a broader expression than domestic violence or intimate partner violence um, and is really uh, looking at violence between a range of uh, familial uh, relationships. Um, family violence is the term that is preferred by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, people, um, but it shouldn't sort of detract from the fact that women and children um, experience it most commonly. The term family and domestic violence is the term that we use um, in 
in Western Australia and other areas of um, of Australia. So it does take into uh, into account um, sort of the uh, violence in intimate partner relationships, um, but also does take account of those uh, those broader relationships. So how you define what you're looking at when you're undertaking research is important um, and what actually constitutes say family and domestic violence is also important because as I said it's a range of behaviours uh, but sometimes it's really hard to quantify something that's non-physical so we find that lots of research actually uh, focuses on um, physical and sexual violence but doesn't take into account the non-physical but what is really, really important when we're talking about uh, family and domestic violence is the issue of uh, fear and control. Um, control is um, actually central. So what we're talking about really when we're talking about, well, how do we understand uh, family and domestic violence is it's intentional um, and it's systematic and the use of violence. And really it's about to create fear and to control the victim's behaviour. Um, so we refer to that as um, coercive control. So within, uh, in between, say, individual incidents of physical violence, there is this ongoing fear and control uh, that's occurring in the relationship that really keeps um, the victim in that relationship and so makes it really difficult uh, for them to leave because it strips away their sense of self uh, their autonomy to be able to make um, independent decisions about their life. So essentially they, be, they can become trapped and they become very social, um, socially isolated, which is another um, controlling tactic that's used. And um, something that has come up, uh, I guess, with the people that I talk to sometimes, very rarely, but sometimes, um, is the idea that domestic violence or family and domestic violence is just related to women uh, and that's not true is it? It can affect both males and females. Yeah it certainly can, um, there's no denying that. Um, the, um, the data does suggest though that about 85% of the time it is women um, who are the main victims. The, uh, the violence that they experience is also often more severe than uh, with men's violence um, as well. So it is, it is a gendered issue. Uh, but certainly men are victims of domestic violence as well. Hmm. Now, I'm going back to my undergraduate years when I was doing a law degree and I did family law as one of the units. And I believe that there was quite a big expansion on the definition of family violence, as I think it's called in the Family Law Act back in 2012 or so. And it sort of includes, along the lines of the themes that you were talking about, about people being controlling and coercive, um, it also included, I think, economic abuse. So when people withhold money from a dependent partner and that sort of thing. So are these all the sorts of issues that come up in your work, Colleen? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so I'll say two things about that. The other um, sort of recent um, sort of addition, if you like, to be um, controlling and, and violence is um, technology facilitated abuse. So tracking people through mobile phones, um, putting up fake posts on Facebook, all that sort of thing um, has become prominent as well. Um, but what we find also is that typically um, victims of domestic violence don't just experience one form of violence. Typically, it's physical and it's 
um, non-physical, so emotional, financial, psychological, social isolation, that type of thing. Um, or it um, can be physical and sexual um, with those um, other non-physical behaviours thrown in. Often also um, victims do not necessarily experience physical violence or sexual violence, and that's particularly common in um, when a sort of a violent relationship is developing. It's not very often that a, a perpetrator of violence, the first sort of um, act would be something physical. Normally, um, initially, it's um, uh, around isolating, controlling uh, the non-physical type uh, violences tend to occur mm -hmm. first, and then it sort of builds and escalates um, and can result in you know, physical violence. Mm. But certainly very, a very broad understanding, Craig, yeah. Um, and it's interesting yeah. to note um, that in the UK, coercive control is actually um, a, a criminal, it's in the criminal code, mm. not here in Australia, but certainly in the UK. And, and also, also, I think the preferred term over there is domestic abuse as that, well. Yeah. It, it is. Um, there's a real debate around violence versus abuse. I mean, um, some people say, well, you really need to name it violence because it is violent. And then, but that tends to sort of dismiss then um, sort of that non-physical abuse. Mm. Um, so that there's two schools of thought of whether it should be termed violence or whether it should be mm. abuse. And that's a debate that's still still going on and it sort of changes across time. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of people assume physical violence when they hear the word violence. Yeah, yeah. they do. They definitely do, yeah. And it's yeah. really hard uh, for victims of violence who don't experience that physical um, or, or sexual component to um, recognise that what they're experiencing is actually domestic violence. Um, they they feel that they need some physical signs that, yes, they've been, um, you know, they've been a victim or, you know, their experiences uh, something else or, you know, service providers won't um, recognise that what they're experiencing is violence or they won't be taken seriously. So it's, it, is a, it is an issue. So it, it seems like this whole topic is, is really huge. So which bits are you working on now? Because I don't think you could cover everything. No. So currently um, I just have two projects uh, running at the moment. Um, the first one is nearing completion, and that was um, a project that was funded by ANROSE, which is Australia's National Research Organisation for Women's Safety, so part of the national plan to reduce uh, violence against women and children. Um, they have several streams of research uh, that they've put up out over a period of time. And uh, a couple of years ago, they put out a perpetrator research stream. Uh, so based on um, work that I had been doing over about 10 years now in refugee communities. Um, based on previous research, what we realised was that um, interventions for uh, those from refugees' backgrounds who use violence, there is nothing really there to provide e any evidence around, you know, what should underpin them, how they should be developed, how they should be implemented and evaluated. Um, and when you look across the, uh, the landscape across Australia, there are really no um, specific interventions for uh, perpetrators of violence and refugee backgrounds. So we put a proposal to ANROSE to develop some best practice principles um, that might inform and underpin um, such interventions. Um, 
and I'll, I'll, I'll talk about the results of that in a minute, if you like. Um, mm -hmm. And the other project that I'm involved in is um, with the WA Centre for Rural Health and Agencies on the ground in Geraldton. Um, it's called Community Respect Equality. Um, so that uh, project um, is really based in organisations in the Greater Geraldton area. Uh, it's based on primary prevention. Um, so it's really working with um, uh, agencies, I mean, workplaces and organisations that have signed up to the, um, the agreement in Geraldton around um, trying to change um, attitudes and behaviours around um, domestic violence. Uh, through workplaces and organisations. So it's got, uh, I guess, three, three prongs. Um, we're doing, we have just completed a um, attitudes and beliefs uh, questionnaire uh, to people in the, the Geraldton area. Um, we're also looking at um, potential bystander training in the organisations that have signed up um, to, the, to the agreement. Um, and also looking at a media strategy and working with media outlets about um, how domestic violence is actually portrayed uh, through the media. So just really trying to shift um, attitudes and behaviours, so very much uh, primary prevention. So they're the, the two that I've got currently running, one um, just starting um, mm -hmm. and one just about to complete. We've got our um, knowledge translation activities for the um, refugee uh, work happening next week. So, so we might delve into the results of some of that work in a minute. Um, yeah. What I was going to ask you first is there are obviously a lot of complex issues that arise when you do look at different cultures. And I think there's probably some domestic violence that happens in Australia that's rather behavioural and like there's an individual aspect to that where the person's behaving badly. And there's, I'd say there's probably some that we would perceive is maybe a bit more deep rooted in culture and attitudes towards women from different times and different countries. How do you deal with that in, in the work that you do? Yeah. So I guess the first thing um, to, to sort of really make clear is that um, it's not people can't and shouldn't hide behind culture as mm -hmm. uh, a justification uh, for violence. So I am, um, my common practice and practice overall is that the research that I do with, um, do cross-culturally, and I'm talking here specifically refugee communities because that's where I've done most of my work, is that I work with communities right across that research process. Um, so involving them in the design of the project, um, training up community members to actually collect the data for us. Um, that has a couple of benefits actually because it enables, enables us to collect in, um, data in the first language of, mm -hmm. um, of the people. So people who don't have um, you know, fluent English can still be um, involved. Um, and it also um, ensures that how we're actually collecting that data is culturally appropriate for the various um, communities. Um, so uh, it also builds capacity in those communities to you know, then go on and uh, do their own research, uh, which I think is really important. So there's a capacity building um, component to it as well. Um, and involving them to the extent that they would like also in um, the analysis and the interpretation of the data. So making sure that 
how we're viewing the data is not from a white Western middle-class lens, that it is really um, uh, viewed from the perspective um, of, um, of the, 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 the cultural lens through which it was collected. Um, so very much um, involvement right across that, that research pro, uh, process, so very much participatory research. Um, and then recognising also that the results, you know, the, the findings that we get really do belong to those communities. So taking it back to them and saying, okay, this is what we found. What would you like to do with these results? You know, what's the next step from, from your perspective? So really um, keeping it embedded in the communities. Does, does that answer the question that you asked, Craig? I, I think so, in part. I, I think um, one of the things I was getting at as well is there are some cultures or, um, you know, religions and whatnot around the world where women are viewed as being inferior um, yeah. historically. And from our perspective and what we see, we, we find that not satisfactory and we find that to be a problem. When you're dealing with communities where that may be the prevailing view or it's something that occurs a lot, what, how do you kind of get around that? Yeah, so that's um, that's really uh, really important. And what um, what we do know is that within communities there are a number of community members and community leaders who don't have those um, uh, patriarchal beliefs, if you like. So it's really working with them um, to uh, you know identify also um, you know our interviewers in the communities we make sure that um, we give them full training but they are also um, individuals who don't hold those violence condoning beliefs so it's not something it's, it's I guess it's a bit by bit step by step process and recognizing also that each of these communities is at varying levels in terms of um, their um, uh, their understanding of, I guess, an embracing of gender, of gender equality. Um, so it's, it's basically working from where the community is, but also sourcing out and working with uh, those who don't hold those um, those stereotypical gender norms, um, because they're also out working in their communities to break down those those attitudes as well. So it's not a it's not a quick it's not quick. I mean, I've been working with refugee communities since about 2006 now. Um, what we are seeing um, through the, the research that we've done and um, some of the programs that we've um, put in into the communities is that um, those, those, um, those attitudes are starting to break down, um, particularly within the, the younger group coming through, the younger leaders. Um, and if you look across, you know, a whole range of um, host countries that do um, have quite a large refugee um, population, similar things are happening. There's new norms around masculinity um, coming out within those, um, those communities, really focused on equality and a different kind of leadership, if you like. And it's about um, breaking down those, uh, those, those gender norms. Um, but it is, it is a work in progress. I, I would have to say also that similar attitudes do prevail in mainstream society mm -hmm. as well. We still get those attitudes um, in um, sort of Anglo-Celtic um, mainstream communities as well. Yeah, no now, question. Uh, 
your your project is about creating those those principles that people can follow because everyone's kind of at a different stage when it comes to culture and and all those things and accepting these principles have you needed to kind of create different principles for different backgrounds of people well um we 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 can't actually do that i think that would be um getting down a bit too um too close but um what we've got is sort of um higher more higher order principles that um um, agencies can work with um, to develop and um, um, implement um, interventions for those who use violence. There are three overarching principles that have to underpin all interventions, and they're interventions related, you know, all interventions related to family and domestic violence. So um, it has, they have to um, work to ensure the safety of women and children. They have to work to ensure that perpetrators are held to account for their actions um, and for refugee communities. It's really about ensuring that um, all interventions are trauma informed. And that's based on um, you know, the, the prior experiences of those from a refugee background around torture, trauma, fleeing persecution and forced, and forced displacement. Um, that said, then we do have um, 12 principles that um, we have um, put together. Our research has, has found that um, that should inform and underpin um, interventions. Now, we do recognise that um, all communities are at different levels of um, understanding um, around violence. Um, and we do recognise also that um, agencies who are wanting to develop um, interventions with communities are at different stages of their relationship with those communities. But basically, uh, the principles that we have come up with are in about, um, probably about five general areas. So there's 12 principles, but generally around five um, basic principles. Uh, First is um, about empowerment. So it's really about interventions that actually empower people um, and working from a strengths-based approach. So not looking for deficits, but looking for strengths and, and working on those strengths. The interventions do need to be um, developed um, and implemented in genuine partnership um, with communities um, and also in their delivery. So um, the, the communities themselves being seen as um, genuine sources of um, support, information um, um, and capacity to, to support the delivery um, of the interventions. Um, the interventions also do need to take account of pre-settlement and post-settlement experiences um, and also respond and re- recognise and respond to sort of the complexity of individual needs as well. So we do know that if you come from a refugee background, you've, pro- you've you know had to leave your country. It's probably not a choice you would have you would have made. You've probably been exposed to things like war, to um, uh, physical violence, sexual violence, a whole range um, of violences led uh, to a refugee country, potentially lived in a refugee camp for a number of years and finally made your way um, to Australia. So a whole range of you know, trauma experiences um, and really quite complex. So really need, needing to be able to take 
um, account of those. But also interventions also need to be able to take account of the diversity in understanding of family and domestic violence um, in the respective communities, but also Australian responses to it. Uh, so a lot of um, refugee people, when they arrive, um, the country from which they fled may not have responded to it at all. It wasn't seen as, as an issue. So um, sort of a formal and systemic response to it is something that's very, very alien to um, a lot of um, newly arrived people. So really about um, recognising that and responding to that uh, within the interventions. So um, our findings do require a rethink of um, how agencies actually work um, to deliver interventions. And it's really about broadening out how we understand an intervention. Um, lots of people in the area of family and domestic violence think about you know, a, a, an intervention with those whose violence is sort of um, restricted largely to men's behaviour change programs, um, which may or may not be appropriate for those from a refugee background. So thinking more broadly about what an intervention is and also thinking about more broadly about, okay, who might we need to involve in this response um, to family and domestic violence? Mm -hmm. And who, who do you think will need to be involved? Uh, and, and, you know, I'm thinking about people who are in government and, and, and acting policy um, here. What, what should they be looking to do, do you think? Yeah, so I think the first thing is to um, bring into the fold agencies like settlement agencies and agencies who work with um, uh, those from a, a refugee background. So agencies like assets and similar organisations across the country. So I think they need to be intimately involved. Um, I think also, although it's a bit more controversial, is um, sort of faith-based organisations being involved. Uh, there is reluctance to do that because there is a sort of a um, research that does suggest that um, religious leaders perhaps sort of feed into those violence condoning beliefs and attitudes. Uh, but from the work that we've done is we've found that there are actually um, a lot of religious leaders who do not condone violence against women and they actively work with their um, religious congregations to, um, you know, uh, to not support the violence. Mm -hmm. um, so they certainly can be involved as well. Um, once again, it's sort of the, um, we need to in involve government and non-government organisations. Um, yeah, so across government, non-government organisations, but thinking about, okay, we also need to involve those agencies who deal specifically with um, refugee communities, not specifically mm -hmm. around um, domestic violence. Um, I think uh, something that just came up there was the perception that, that some religious leaders may be contributing to the, pro the problem. And I think that raises an issue of media coverage because those kind of negative stories obviously get more airplay than the positive ones you just referred to, which yeah. are probably the vast majority of cases. Yeah. So how can you work with the media or how can the media kind of contribute to this improving <laughs> that's a very good question. I guess that's what we're trying to do in Geraldton um, as well. Um, one, uh, look, I, I don't have the answer to that, to be perfectly honest, um, mm -hmm. but uh, I would like to just sort of reflect on um, some previous research that we did with African refugee communities back in about 2008, 2009, 
Um, we were very um, careful with that research uh, around the findings because it was at the time where there was a whole lot of um, negative media about particularly Sudanese gangs mm -hmm. and things like that. And the last thing that we wanted was for the media to pick up on something that was negative in the, in the report and actually run with that and overlook all the positive um, you know, things that, that the communities are actually doing. Um, so when we were actually launching um, the research, what we thought we would do was invite those people who had been um, interviewed as part of the research along to the launch. Now, domestic violence in refugee communities is a very sensitive issue. Um, and bringing you know, five communities together for a launch where um, some of the participants were those who had experienced violence um, was um, you know, something that you know, we sort of thought very long and hard about. But our advisory group, which was um, you know, brought together from, from the communities, they were really keen to do it. So we thought, well, why not? So we sent out um, the invitation um, to all those people to come along to the launch. And it was, it was great. We had, you know, African drumming and food and, you know, launched the report. It was really fantastic. And they actually came. A lot of them actually came. So, um, and the media that came out of that was actually positive. So um, I think there's a couple of things there. Number one, um, working in the way that we did to actually undertake the research was seen as a positive experience uh, for those participants. Um, and they felt so you know, comfortable enough to be able to come out and, you know, and to share that um, in a launch. Um, so I think that the, the media coverage of that, they could, they could actually see the positives. And I think that that was sort of really quite powerful and gave them something else to focus on rather than you know, some, of the, some of the negatives that, that may have been found. So once again, I think it's, I think it's um, a bit by bit working with... Um, you know, with with the with the media um, and, and journalists and things like that. But I do think another area that we are really um, falling back on is um, actually providing this sort of information and education and training to students. So students who are actually undertaking um, you know media studies and things like that. I think getting in at that level um, is going to be important. We're also, I think, and I'm probably going off track a little bit here, but with our, um, our health uh, and medical students, they don't get enough information and training around um, domestic violence. They, you know, they're going to see it when they're out there and they're working, but we don't mm. equip them. I don't think we equip them appropriately to be able to go out and just deal with that complexity do, and respond appropriately. Do they, um, do they get any information about, like, where to send people who've, um, or, like, sorry, not where to send them physically, but advice or things like that. Do they have any information about that to give people? Um, you mean students? Yeah. Um, they get very little. Yeah, right. I mean, I know that um, the College of General Practice, I think, does have some um, postgraduate sort of professional development around it. Um, even, even social work students, I don't think, get um, sufficient um, information. Nursing students, they would encounter it regularly and, you know, they might get one or two lectures across their course on a bit of information. I, I just don't think we do it any justice. And I, I certainly don't think that a lot of graduating students understand coercive control. 
Mm -hmm. um, and unless they can understand coercive control, then they really can't respond holistically um, to those who are um, experiencing yeah. it. Yeah, I, mm. I think I agree with that because um, my, my undergraduate's in psychology and looking back, I don't remember covering it at all and a lot of those psychology students would end up becoming a psychologist and probably having to deal with people that have yeah. experienced it. So that's yeah. very interesting. Hmm. No, and what we find also is that um, from the research I've done is that um, women might go to a mental health person and you know talk about their experiences and they get sort of treated, if you like, for anxiety and depression hmm. without looking at, okay, hmm. what's, what's underlying this? So, yeah. What's driving that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's probably a good point for us to start talking about another project which I think you might be a supervisor on that looks at the impact of domestic violence perpetrated against mothers during that sort of perinatal period. Yeah. Um, so what we do know about um, uh, domestic violence is that it can increase um, around um, pregnancy and childbirth. So it is a, an area, a time of uh, particular vulnerability uh, for women sorry i'm um, gonna i'm gonna interrupt you why <laughs> why um there's there's lots of sort of um thoughts um around this um number one is that um when a woman becomes pregnant then she may not have the same um time and energy to devote to looking after for want of a better word um the um her partner Mm -hmm. um, so there are sort of um, some sort of um, jealousy type issues um, there. Um, after after childbirth, um, just the I guess the added stress around um, having a newborn in the house may um, work to inflame um, tensions already that might be um, in that in that relationship. So yeah, um, lots of not lots, I can't say that, but some women don't actually experience physical violence until they become pregnant. And quite often the abdomen then become, does become um, a, a focus for where that physical violence is, um, is focused. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, it can lead to things like preterm birth, um, difficulties with pregnancy um, because, you know, um, a woman who's experiencing violence may miss antenatal appointments and things like that, so may not, you know, um, get the, um, the normal um, antenatal care. Yeah, yeah so it's, um, uh, it is a difficult time, it, yeah. It's, it sounds horrific. I mean, it's a time when a woman's at her most vulnerable in a lot of ways, uh, obviously carrying a baby as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's kind. Of, it seems. It seems counterintuitive that that would yeah. happen. Yeah. It, it it does also, and um, there's also some school of thought that you know um, a woman's libido changes during pregnancy, and she may not be as available, um, for mm -hmm. want of a better word, than she was previously as well. So all these things play into it, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and so that that work, I believe it's looking at hospital services. So these are in incidents that happen that lead to someone re needing to go to hospital, in, whether it's the emergency department or being admitted, um, and also child protection service involvement as well. Yeah. So what we wanted to um, look at with the the hospitalisation one um, is that we um, we do know that uh, women of childbearing age um, are. Um, more likely to be admitted to hospital 
uh, for assault. So if we can sort of understand the prevalence of assault hospitalisations, um, then it becomes you know, an important sort of intervention point, um, I guess, um, if mm. you like. Um, so what we found uh, with that was that, um, and I'll just take a step back. So we actually used linked administrative data for, for this research. Um, and um, Carol, who is the, our PhD student, um, is the first one who's able to be uh, to have access to uh, police data to identify um, a cohort of women who have experienced um, domestic violence. Mm -hmm. um, so what we what we found um, what we looked at was um, uh, when we're talking about hospitalizations, um, um, sort of twelve months before. Um, the birth and up to up to three years after the birth of um, of the of the child, and we were looking at um, births of children who were born between 1990 and 2009, so that um, 20 year gap. Um, and what we found during that time frame was there was an increase in the prevalence of assault admissions uh, for mothers who were born, um, and that. Um, uh, increased level of prevalence remained for that decade. So what we're finding is over an extended period of time for women who have experienced um, violence, then there is um, an increased elevation of their hosp of hospital um, admissions for, uh, for assault. Mm -hmm. So some of the characteristics um, of those women, um, being under 30 years of age, so we do know that uh, women up to about uh, 45 are particularly vulnerable. So um, domestic violence is actually one of the um, uh, largest um, indicate uh, morbidity um, for for women aged um, 30 to 45. Um, so um, so being under 30, low socioeconomic status, um, and also being Aboriginal. Um, so sort of uh, when you sort of think about those sort of um, risk factors, if you like, um, they, they sort of are uh, indicative of a whole, of a whole range of um, other um, yep. risk factors as well. So socio-demographic kind of risk factors that we see in other areas as well. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. from that from that research, we sort of identified that women under thirty, um, you know, do continue to be an important target group for prevention and intervention. Yeah, I think that kind of plays into the point you were making before about some of our medical practitioners not getting the the right training or sufficient training in this area because they're the ones on the front line who are who are best placed to recognise this when it does happen. Yeah, absolutely. We do find that um, nurses like midwives are probably better than you know more equipped than than most. Mm -hmm. um, they're aware of sort of the um, increased vulnerability around pregnancy and the early postnatal period. Um, so they're probably more attuned than um, you know a lot of professionals uh, working in the area. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And, and uh, I think one of the aspects of that research was having a look at child protection service involvement with that cohort of people as well, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, so um, what we looked at was, um, is there, what, what is, what's the, the odds, I guess, of um, a child maltreatment um, um, after, uh, for those who have had, for children who have um, experienced um, Domestic violence. So once again, looking at their mother who had been hospitalised 
um, looking at subsequent um, child maltreatment um, um, instances. Uh, and what we found was that 20% um, of children um, whose mother had a hospitalisation for assault um, during their childhood, but also during the prenatal period, um, had a subsequent um, maltreatment um, allegation. So it's really um, quite a significant um, uh, percentage of, mm. of children. Um, and there is research to suggest that there is um, an association between um, child maltreatment and family and domestic violence, but this actually sort of puts some really good numbers around mm -hmm. it, just based on um, you know, a large sample size um, and you know, administrative data. So bringing that together, it doesn't sort of rely on you know, personal recall uh, and yep. recall bias and things like that. And sorry, yeah. just for comparison, um, what's the average level of child protection service involvement in like, uh, the general population? Look, it's actually higher than what you would think. And I don't have the exact data, but in Western Australia, I think it's one in eight children have some connection to um, an allegation. So not a substantial mm -hmm. a substantiation, but some sort of allegation. Mm -hmm. So it's really quite high. It's really quite frightening, actually. Yeah. And so armed with this this uh, information, which is obviously quite difficult to get in the first place, what what sort of action can be taken to try and prevent these sorts of things happening in the future? Yeah, look, I think there needs to be a whole lot more family support goes in in the early stages. Um, I, I think it's much too late when you get to the um, where you know, children are being uh, abused or neglected. Um, mm -hmm. I think that, you know, um, early intervention um, and family support in those early times, I think, is absolutely critical um, because we do know also that the outcomes for children who have been in out-of-home care and things like mm -hmm. that are not great. Um, yeah. So uh, I think, you know, early intervention is really key. We need to do a whole lot more um, in that area. And certainly, um, just as a, an aside, um, another PhD student who I'm currently working with is looking at methamphetamine use um, in pregnancy and once again they are advocating for um, working closely with families um, early on early intervention um, mm -hmm. to um, uh, so that forced um, removal at birth um, doesn't happen yeah so there's a yeah. whole lot of work that needs to be done intensive work around family yeah. support I think that sort of ties in with we had an earlier podcast episode with the 100 Families Project. Yeah. And a lot of these issues kind of came up in our conversation. You know, they, they experience yeah. a lot of these problems. Yeah, no, I'm also involved in the 100 Families Project. So um, the um, prevalence of domestic violence in our baseline survey um, in that project was even confronting for me. I was expecting quite a high prevalence, but I think it was about 70-something percent or something like that. So that was just, mm -hmm. um, yeah, indicates that there is a lot of work that we need to be doing yep. around this area. Yeah. It, it also is quite with topical. The, um, yeah. With the child um, maltreatment, we also know that, you know, um, working particularly with children under six years of age is really important because they're in, um, they're in the home um, much more often. They may not have those um, connections to other organised um, institutions like education and things like that. So that's a particularly uh, vulnerable time as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. I guess that brings us nicely onto probably our last 
topic of conversation, which is the current COVID-19 pandemic. Where uh, lots how... of people are stuck at home. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So obviously it's quite early days in terms of any data that might be available because, you know, we're talking weeks, not months at this stage. Um, yeah. What's your sense of how this is impacting on, on family and domestic violence? Oh, look, I think it's had a major impact, actually. Um, we do have a little bit of data. So what we do know um, is that um, the sale of alcohol has increased um, since mm -hmm. restrictions came into effect. And we do know that there is an association, not a causation, but an association between alcohol use um, and violence. We also know that there's been a 75% increase in um, Google searches related to um, domestic domestic violence oh, wow. okay. um, during, during the restriction. Um, and that's compared to the average number of searches over the last five years. Um, so the sense there is that um, people may not feel that they can reach out by phone um, as they may have um, done before and they're looking for other ways um, to reach out. Um, we also know that it's not data, but we also know that we can't actually um, maintain the same um, uh, access to the actions of perpetrators of violence during this time. So that's uh, a bit of an issue. So things like um, uh, group programs and face-to-face -face programs um, have ceased, although they have gone, a lot of them have gone you know, telephone or online. Um, but the actual existence of the virus has actually um, sort of um, provided an extra avenue, if you like, for perpetrators of violence to actually exercise that coercive control. So by the very fact that people are, you know, restricted to their house, they be, they can't, that just adds to um, so, uh, social isolation. Um, we have heard um, um, anecdotal evidence of those who use violence uh, withholding necessities, such as food, um, access to hand sanitizer, um, disinfectant, that, that type of thing, um, about providing misinformation about COVID-19 as a means to um, frighten um, the victim. Um, increased monitoring of phones and other devices, um, increased criticisms around things like parenting skills and really micro-regulation of a, a woman's um, sort of daily routines. Um, and sort of using the pandemic, and I think this is really quite disturbing, but using the pandemic um, to excuse their violence. So, you know, I'm angry, I'm frustrated, therefore I'm, it's okay that I lash out. Mm. Um, so there's a whole range of um, ways that this, uh, this pandemic is actually sort of feeding into, um, into violence. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's also been um, just some other data, um, an 11% increase um, in calls to 1800RESPECT helpline, which is the National um, Domestic Violence Helpline. Um, and also, and I think this is positive actually, um, a 26% increase in calls to the men's line. So maybe um, sort of a recognition from some men that, okay, I'm not liking what, what I'm feeling, what I might about be about to do. So actually reaching out and, uh, and getting some um, some support mm. and counselling. Oh. So it certainly had an impact. Yeah, 
That's stark, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it really is, yeah. Yeah. So with, obviously, technology can be abused and used for evil, uh, but it also probably provides opportunities to help people as well, doesn't it, in that situation? Uh, it absolutely does. I think one of the things that the state government was looking at um, is um, enabling the lodging of violence restraining orders applications online. So normally... Um, someone who wanted to lodge an application would need to physically go in. So enabling that through um, through online um, and, and fast tracking it. But also lots of services have, um, uh, you know, moved their counselling and support to online and telephone. Um, but there's also some really good websites that have sprung up where um, um, groups have brought together um, so, for example, the Australian Women Against Violence Network has brought together resources from a whole range of um, agencies and sectors related to um, family domestic violence and just located them on one website. So, go onto that website, you can actually, um, you know, live link to a whole range of sectors and a whole range of supports. So, I think, you know, um, that's been really positive um, as well. So, using that um, technology for that as well. Mm. But also, um, you know, there's things that actually individuals can can do um, as well. Um, and so, if, once again, um, sort of using, if you like, um, uh, you know, the, the pandemic as a way of um, trying to break down some sort of that isolation that victims may feel. So reaching out, you know, to a sister or a friend that you may have lost contact with and using the pandemic and your own social isolation to actually make that contact. Um, so sort of saying things like, um, you know, I'm feeling a bit isolated, so I thought I would reach out and make contact. And then sort of mm -hmm. that's a way of just opening up that that dialogue uh, with that person. So I think that that's, uh, that's, really, that's really positive. So, you know, using the pandemic for good and the, yeah. the restrictions for good, um, if you like. Yeah. Yeah, but, um, you know, we also need to be, you know, picking up and calling out um, abusive behaviour. You know, if you hear something like, oh, you know, he's just lost his job, he's going to be really stressed, what do you expect? Well, you know, countering that by saying, well, you know, not all men who drink or have lost their jobs are violent, you know. Mm. That's, so really calling out um, the behaviour and sort of, you know, challenging it I think is really important. Definitely. I think that yeah. could be quite difficult for someone to do particularly if they like they see a friend going through that situation sometimes I feel like that could be difficult but it, it's really important to do that because then you can have a positive experience and and get them out of it as well so absolutely I think yeah. it's important yeah mm. and um, certainly that's one of the um, sort of the the strategies in the um, national our watch uh, prevention framework around you know challenging and calling out you know, state, um, you know, statements and um, abusive, um, you know, language and things like that. Yeah, mm. but it, it can be challenging. There's no doubt about that. And that's why I think, you know, getting in early um, to, um, you know, university settings, not only professional, um, you know, programs, but, you know, a range of programs I think would, you know, the students would benefit from you know, recognising it and being able to respond. Yeah. yeah. I, th I think it, if it becomes the norm that it's antisocial, then society 
you know, has a pretty good way of regulating people's behaviour. If just like we've done with smoking, for example, I don't want to draw parallels between the two, but you know, smoking these days, you're a bit of a pariah if you smoke. You kind of get yeah. outcast. You um, absolutely are, Craig. And when yeah. you look at sort of how long it took for you know behaviours and that to change around smoking, we've got to realise we've got to be in it for the long haul. Mm. It's not something that you can change overnight. Fortunately, you're not fighting against well-funded multinational companies. <laughs> <laughs> that's very true. It's very true. <laughs> it's just people's perspectives. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they no, could be just exactly. as hard. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. And I, I guess when we sort of look forward about moving out of um, restrictions, which is sort of where we're, you know, hearing today a little bit about perhaps potential easing of restrictions, I think mm. what we'll find is that um, services are going to be really um, overrun. I think there's going to be sort mm. of a pent-up demand um, that's been caused by um, restrictions. Uh, so I think having a well-resourced and, um, um, you know, um, resource physically, you know, I'm um, not physically, but um, financially and yep. human resources um, available in, in agencies, I think it's going to be really important as we sort of yeah. move into the, the recovery phase, if you like. Yep, it's going to be long and gradual, I'd say. Yes, for sure. Yeah. For now, sure. well, I think we're probably just about at the end. Colleen, was there anything else you wanted to cover before we signed off? Um, uh, no, I think that I think it's been a great conversation. I, I, I'd just um, like to say that um, undertaking research in the area of domestic violence is challenging, but um, it's also um, empowering for me because, uh, or and humbling because, as I said before, you realise that um, those who go through these experiences have such resilience and such strength, um, mm. and being able to draw on that strength to, um, you know enable them to work towards violence-free lives, I think, is is really, really important. Yeah, I definitely agree. Yep, I agree. All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thanks very much for your time today. It's been wonderful having you on, and, and this is obviously a really contemporary and important issue. And, uh, yeah, we look forward to seeing what, what work follows for you guys. No, thanks. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for the opportunity. And um, we'll put some of the links um, for where people can get help if they are experiencing domestic violence mm. as well in our show notes, um, I think that's probably a good idea. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah. Yes, yeah. for sure. For sure. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thanks. That was our conversation with Professor Colleen Fisher. We have included some links to places where you can read more about Colleen's work. We have also included links to places that offer assistance to people experiencing issues relating to family and domestic violence. As always, we love hearing from you. So if you have any feedback about the podcast or have suggestions for topics that you would like to hear us cover in future episodes, please email us at meaningofhealth@outlook.com or tweet us at healthmeanswhat. Stay safe and we look forward to bringing you another episode soon. Health podcast is produced with the support of the School of Population and Global Health and the Education Enhancement Unit at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with music by Craig Cumming. Mm-hmm.